Welcome to the Lifelines Podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. I don't know if it was an advantage, but maybe it, it did give me, just as you said, that feeling of standing outside of people, sort of outside of a group, because I knew I was different in a certain way, and observing. Um, so maybe it helped. I, I don't know. In terms of making me feel like I wanted to observe what was going on. Our guest today, Rana Weinberg, is the senior fiction editor of the Bellevue Literary Review and a fellow at the New York Foundation for the Arts. Her first novel won the Shelf Unbound Best Indie Book Competition. Her short stories have been broadcast on national public radio and collected into two books. Her, her most recent work, titled Nine Facts That Can Change Your Life, won honorable mention for last year's Eric Hoffer Book Award. We are thrilled to have you here. And one of the ways that Diane and I decided we wanted to start is by using your own words. Uh, in the beginning of the book, there is a quote, beautiful quote, that we both picked out. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. We have to start there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We see the world as we are. And in some ways, when I read the book, I was especially excited because you saw the world in a very similar way to the way I see the world. One of the things that I found especially comforting was reading about people who were in the same situations that I had lived through. And I, I wanted to ask you, is it um, something that has been a consistent theme where you have written about these issues that I think are sort of classic women in the world issues, how women find places in the world and how their relationships are defined by their being women in the world? First of all, I want to say that I'm thrilled to be here too with both of you. It's very wonderful. And thank you for reading that quote and for that question. I think I've always gravitated to women's issues, not because, not for any kind of political stance, but just because it interested me and the characters and their situations interest me. So I'm happy that the book spoke to you and dealt with issues that were of importance to you. Well, especially because they're problematic, right? I mean, it wasn't all the wonderful things about being a woman. It was right. like finding out that other women felt crushed or miserable or alone when it came to figuring out how their marriages were going to stay together and when it came to figuring out how they were going to deal with post-divorce issues, um, which I don't find featured a lot, mm. you know? And so it was comforting to read, I remember one of the short stories had a group of women and they had all been um, through divorce and they all raised different um, facets of the problem and the conversation kind of jumped around in the most credible, natural way as conversations do and I just got this huge drink of water from it because it was all the different things that I thought I struggled with alone. Right, and here were these people sharing it, and I was like, wow, I wasn't... It's more the universal than you thought, huh? <laughs> these feelings, these questions, these... I, I actually had a different set of questions, which is great. That in reading the same book, we came away with, with um, a different 
uh, slice of what you've presented. Um, I, and I too, I mean, I've been divorced, Diane has been divorced, so we, we've been through that road. It's of course the, the topic resonated. Um, but there were some other questions that came up and it, and, it, and it made me think more about the couples that are still struggling to stay together and instead of going apart. So I was thinking about, you know, uh, how do we cope with still wanting to feel a connection to someone that we're in relationship with, even if, even if it seems as life is what it is and therefore takes us away from that bonding that, that should happen and continue to happen. So I wanted to delve into that a little bit too because there's almost a separation and then there's a separation, right? There's, there are two different types of, of going apart. Right, right, right. I think that's true. I think, you know, if you're in a troubled marriage or you feel like there isn't a connection, the first instinct is to want to connect. And maybe the character in Nine Facts that you can change your life, the story, Grace was experiencing that because her husband sent her a letter from, or the husband's lawyer sent her a letter, but she still wanted to get back together with him. She still wanted to find a way to connect with him. And in the end, it didn't seem possible, but that's what she was hoping for. Right. So I don't know if there's any one way to try and bridge that gap, but I think it's a natural inclination. How do you find these characters? Do you just sit down with a pen and start writing, or do you have a formula? Or No, I just, I don't know. I, I just, um, I have a very vivid imagination. And also, I sometimes I hear things that people say, or sometimes there's a piece of dialogue that will... It's not dialogue, but you know, when people are talking, a piece of conversation that I think is particularly perceptive or interesting, and so I might start with that, and I imagine a character because of that. Um, we like so. to get all the secrets about yeah. the creation, <laughs> and yeah. so so sometimes we've spoken to writers who have um, who have both the digital, you know, notebooks, or they have mostly the writing. A lot of writers actually still do pen to paper, right? And and sort of play with ideas. Who was it that was really prolific? Mary McDonald, and she had all these books, oh. and and she and she listened for, you know, snippets of conversation. Right. And she always seemed to have something where she can write these things down. Right. Yeah, I do the same thing. I have a notebook and I write it down, and I I keep a journal. So every morning I try and write things down, or if I hear something interesting or even read something, I'll write it down. Mm -hmm. um, or again, in the story Nine Facts, I happened to come across that brochure actually in my parents' house that they had kept for many years. And I thought, this is amazing. You know, I, I want to use this somehow. <laughs> and so I saved it until I found a way to use it. It's such a great title. I love the title. <laughs> and it is such a perfect little metaphor that this woman would want to grab onto a life raft and when this piece of advertising comes her way and says, it'll change your life, as so many products are promised to do, that she would want it. And it sort of ends in a way that a lot of the short stories I read by you ended, which is that there's an openness in it. You've introduced the situation and the possibilities, but you don't always make it clear at the end which way the character is going to go. That's right. A lot of the stories don't have closure. It's kind of, I, I try to capture a moment, but I, I don't really capture the whole sweep of, sweep of the life. We don't know what's going to happen afterwards. We can imagine, right. but right. we don't know. And, That's and true. talking about story endings, the <coughs> one that really hit it for me, this one, the human eye is always more than enough 
wait a minute, the human eye is always more than enough. Was this, oh, this is my note, was a superb way of ending the oh, story. Because, thank you. I, because for me as a reader, the questions that came from right before that, those words hit me were, what causes us to ask the question, how well we will fare when we travel alone? And when does a marriage become a sheer force of will? I mean, those are two powerful things that sort of, the, the first question came to me at the beginning and the second at the very end when you know you have this sight and therefore if you have sight and perspective and a, and a new view then in a way you have everything but then you see what you've lost right, right? and you see what you still want so i just oh that, i it blew me away it was a oh great i'm, gl- thing I'm glad that endings. you liked it yeah. well i like that phrase too because i think in a marriage or in life you can think you see things in a certain way you might think you need you know, more information or you have to look more closely, but really sort of your, the human eye, your initial perception, your instinct is always enough because the man in the story was a jeweler and he was, you know, trying to figure out the value of things and he had to use all kinds of equipment. But for her, she realized her instinct, her sight was enough. Which sort of goes back to that quote with which you opened the book, the one from... Uh, ancient sayings, yeah. yeah. So, do you are you a complete moral relativist? You don't have a message here. Oh, you <laughs> take my jacket off. Sorry. Well, I don't know. We um, have these questions to answer, so I, I I think. Um, could you repeat the question? Uh, I complete, asked if you had a message. I asked if you oh, were a message. complete moral relativist. I don't think that I have a message, but. My goal was really to capture emotion so that the facts and the stories aren't true, but to capture the emotion of, let's say, going through a troubled marriage or a divorce or whatever it is that the people are going through. But maybe, um, maybe there is a message in that line that you quoted about the human eye, what you see, what you feel, what you want is enough. Maybe that's the message, but I didn't write it with the message in mind. Right. Um, that is a Talmudic saying. I didn't want to emphasize it too much, but I think um, the the Jewish experience, or even just sort of the um, outgroup experience, is something that comes up a lot. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that a little? Yeah. Um, I didn't sit down to write a group of stories that discuss the Jewish experience, but that experience arose as I dealt with the different characters. And um, I'm Jewish and, you know, I had a a Jewish upbringing and I, um, so I guess that was part of my youth and it kind of infused itself in the stories um, because many of the characters are Jewish. And the last story particularly deals with um, the theme of religion, the other, intermarriage um, and what that means and that was of interest to me. I think it's very writerly. I remember when we were talking with Jim Cunin, he was talking about a writer is always slightly the other, is always slightly at a remove and observing and you know when you come into society identified with a smaller group, especially if it's a minority group, you're almost automatically taught how to be in that observer role because you're not able to completely identify. So did you find that being born 
Jewish was an advantage for your writing career? Um, I don't know if it was an advantage, but maybe it, it did give me, just as you said, that feeling of standing outside of people, sort of outside of a group, because I knew I was different in a certain way, and observing. Um, so maybe it helped, I, I don't know. In terms of making me feel like I wanted to observe what was going on. So I feel like you're making everything seem so easy. What was hard oh. for you? <laughs> it's, oh, really, go back to uh, it's, it's really not that easy. Well, 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 first of all, when I wrote the book, I wrote the stories individually. So I didn't sit down and think, oh, I'm going to write this book. And I chose what stories to put in the book. But, you know, each time I write a story, it's really a challenge. I mean, I start out with the character and I have things happen to the character and the characters and then... Maybe I don't like what happens, or I, I have to keep revising it because mm -hmm. the sentences aren't right or the dialogue isn't right. Um, so, in fact, the story Matters of the Heart, um, which is kind of a long story in two parts, was originally two stories, two separate oh. stories with the same characters. And for the book, I put them together because it seemed better not to repeat the information. So, you know, it was a challenge to do that. It was kind of hard, really, right, right. to see if I could do that. So it's not really that easy. But um, the interesting thing is, considering that you wrote them separately, there were these themes that were definitely connected about disconnection, ironically right, enough. Right. And, and I did, I think in two of the stories, there, were, there was this experience of going on a second honeymoon. I picked up on that. Oh. And I, I don't think you did, oh, right. but no, there were well, two stories true. where there yeah, was a I second didn't. honeymoon. And I thought that was interesting because I was like, that seems almost like a rite of passage for a long-term marriage. Is right. that at some point, you're going to go to this through the second honeymoon phase, hopefully. Right. And yet, you know, these people who are going through that are not really all that connected. So it's an interesting dichotomy there. Oh, that's really interesting because I didn't realize that it was in the two stories. I, mm -hmm. The story of Question of Place. They suck in there. Hands. Right, that's <laughs> true. And also maybe the idea of a second honeymoon is kind of hopeful because right. if you're feeling disconnected, you really want to connect. And, you know, a honeymoon is a hopeful, hopeful thing to do. But in, in both these cases, the people weren't able to connect. So it, it didn't work that well for them. But I want to hear more about struggle because this is... wants to get to nitty-gritty. All right. I'll, so what's the process like? Maybe we well, talk about process. Well, for example, the story A Question of Place, I wrote about... Um, maybe uh, 20 years ago. It's a very old story. And I revised it and I revised it. I put it in first person and third person. I changed the ending and it was eventually published. And when I decided to put it in the collection, I revised it again. I mean, it was sort of get, driving me crazy because something wasn't right about it. And so I revised the language. I didn't revise the plot so much, but I did revise the end. I made it a little bit... Um, less closed, you know, less um, firm, right, what happened right. at the end. Right. But um, even when the book was in galleys, I was still making changes to the story. Why, the, why was that? I mean, that's, that's an important story for you. You've been at it for 20 years yeah. with this story. So what do you think was, there was about it that I don't know. just said it was wrong for you? Well, I, you know, some of the language I didn't like, so I wanted to change the language. And... I wanted to make things maybe less blatant. Mm -hmm. um, and I was never really happy with the end. I wanted it just to be um, a less resolved end. Um, you know, rather than having the woman just run off and say we're through. You know, they have three young children in the story, so that's not such an easy thing to do. So I wanted there to be sort of more 
ambivalence and I wanted her to have realizations at the end of the story. So, um, so even though the story had been published, I was still working on it. I was kind of obsessed by it. Right, right. Um, but, well, you know. know what's great about realizations is that then it starts to become clear one of several paths that people, that, you know, their protagonists can take. Right. It's like the realizations I'm not seeing, the realizations I'm, I want to connect, but I can't connect. And so therefore, the reader doesn't get to the conclusion, so to speak, but they do get the idea that, oh, they have to choose between A and B. Right. And so, or C in some cases. But I, I think it's great. I think it's a, a terrific way. Maybe that, are you satisfied now? With the, with yeah, the I'm, I'm satisfied. You, you, it's you've fine. You've gotten what you want. <laughs> I, 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 it's perfectly fine. I'm very happy with it. Because I think that works. I think it's oh, a, a great, a great um, approach to, to storytelling oh. in that way. So do you want to talk a little bit more about the craft, or do you want to delve into that a little bit, Diane? What are you thinking? I mean, what was the hardest thing for you to learn? Oh, about writing stories? Yeah. Um, I think the hardest thing for, and I think every time I write a story, I learn it again, I learn something again, which is when does a story stop and when does it end? You know, how do you know that the story ends as it should end? And when is a lot of the things at the beginning, one of my teachers once said that when you write, sometimes at the beginning you do a lot of throat clearing and you put a lot of information yes. in that you right. don't need. Right. So I may write a draft of the story mm -hmm. and I have to look at it and think, what do I really need? You know, even though I might love the sentences, you know, I might have to force myself to get rid of it. Right. And then, have I just stopped the story or does it end? And then also to make the dialogue seem realistic rather than um, stilted right. and to have the conversation seem realistic. So I really do a lot of drafts of a story and I can do a draft again after the story's been published, just as I said. Like, this, this story at the end, A Celebration of the Life of the Reverend um, Edward Henry Jameson, had been published. And um, I, an editor looked, you know, read the book and did some editing. And um, he said to me that toward the end, when I have, there's a funeral service in it, that I had gotten the order of it wrong. Hmm. And it was an Episcopalian service. So I called an Episcopalian church, and I talked to a minister, and we and it was a wonderful conversation. We talked about life, we talked about death, we talked about rituals, and he told me what the order would be, so I changed it. Huh? But also because of the conversation, I put a little bit of what he had said into the description at the end because oh, I thought it was so moving, so I changed it in that way. That's really interesting because it's sort of, there's a finality when you first put it into print. Then if you want to do revisions and change it again and again, it becomes difficult because it's in different forms depending on what place the reader picks it up. That's right. That's right. But you don't, you don't well, allow that to enter into your thinking and you just, if you want to change it, you just do. Right, if I want to change it, I do, because usually if something's published in a literary journal, sometimes I look at it and I think to myself, what was I thinking? Why did I put that in? But it's too late because right. it's published, so when I used it for the book, right. I was able to make the changes that I wanted. 
Well, I think that's it. I think it's actually interesting to have different versions of the same story for the readers anyway who yeah. become fans it must be a nice I would go crazy thing. with that because of my <laughs> general OCD I'd have like 48 versions out. well that's the thing you know <laughs> as a writer and I think I'm like this you you get very obsessive I think that's what mm. allows the writer to revise right. because right. something isn't right you have to change it something yeah. isn't working but at some point you just have to stop yourself because you, Otherwise, people will consider you slightly insane. Right, it's true. And I guess at, as, a, as a writer at a certain point, I just think this is as far as I can take this story right now. You know, I, I just have to put it aside. Okay, can we, can we talk about the younger you and when you started at the very first moment that you can remember when you knew you were going to take this path in life and become a writer? When was that? Well... When I was really young, you know, when I was a child, I wanted to be either a writer or an artist. So you knew that early. See, I love to, to know that but, story. That but, yeah, I mean, I just that's just something I wanted to do. And I used to write newspapers, you know, for the family, and I would make up movies and make up reviews. You know, that's I was just cool. like sitting there and my mother would say, why are you sitting at your desk? You know, it's so nice outside. Why don't you go play? <laughs> so, but I, I just had that feeling. But then, you know, as I grew up, I... We were talking about this a little bit before. I felt that writing wasn't that practical and, you know, how would I support myself if I were a writer and if I went to law school, which I did, I could have a diploma and hang it on my wall and I could get a job, whereas as a writer I couldn't do that. So I, I went to law school, but I was still very interested. And when I was a public defender, um, you were a public defender too. That's right. You know that when you have clients, you sit in court and you wait a lot. And so I used to wait in court and take notes about what was going on, what people were saying and how they looked. And um, I just, you know, I was always kind of writing. I think there's a lot of crossover there because when I was in law school and also in law practice, a lot of the lawyers were hobbyists at writing or they had been published writers or they had a second career writing something for either the stage. You have so much good material all the time. Right. Well, and I think that there's a similarity because you put on a trial or you organize a case around a storyline. And so you have to start thinking in terms of stories, right? That's true. Oh, that's interesting. So that's I, true. I, I see, as a non-attorney, I wouldn't have realized that that's how it works. I mean, in a way, a trial is a sort of, is a kind of fiction because you have the facts and you have to create the facts, create the story in a way that's most positive and best for your client, even if you have to leave things out or stretch things a little bit. I mean, you never lie, but, you know, you can put a spin on a story. So... You're right. Trial lawyers are really storytellers. And I think also lawyers are very verbal and like to write just generally and, um, you know, maybe drawn to that, to writing and law. Do you ever miss it? Um, I miss being able to help people. I thought that was wonderful. And there was something really exciting about being in a trial. So sometimes I do miss it, but not enough to go So why, to why did you eventually... Well, let me, before I ask you that, do you still believe that writers, writing as a career is not practical? That's the first part. And the second part is, when did you leave your legal career behind and decide to do this? Well, I think, in a sense, writing isn't that practical, 
But that has nothing to do with whether or not you want to write. If you want to write or you have a passion to write, I think that you should, and you should know that you might need other means of supporting yourself, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't write. Um, I agree. And especially, I think, in this climate, it's getting more difficult for writers to, to earn money and to have royalties and um, just lots of different things because what's happened in publishing. Well, I want to hear more about that because I assume it was always difficult. Um, I think that when I first started um, thinking about writing, which was way back in the dark ages, it was always covered with this feeling of you have very long odds at distinguishing yourself. It's a very uncertain path. And so why do you feel like it's worse or harder now? Well, I think because of what's happened with publishing, with Amazon and discount books and um, maybe even computers, there's a lot more competition than there was. Uh, I heard the president of the Authors Guild speak last week and Roxana Robinson. At AWP? Uh, no, I, it was at a, a meeting. I'm actually a member of an organization called Word of Mouth. It's for women fiction writers oh, who've published books. Okay. And so it was a gathering and she spoke and she said, and I may not get the figure right, but she said that people had reported that their incomes had gone down about 40% in the oh. last 10 years. Oh, writers. I might, again, not have the right figure, but it had gone down. So, but I'm tempted to speculate that while the writers had their incomes go down, the number of writers who were able to enter the field might have gone up because of desktop publishing and new ways of getting published and Amazon and all of the internet revolution? I think that's true. I think that there are more writers now because of that. It's easier to be a writer. It's easier to publish your own book. Just harder to make a living. It's just it. harder to make a living. But on the other hand, you know, if you have a passion for something, I think one should do it. You should do it if you want to be a painter, you know, if you sure. love to paint or you sure. love to write. You can't always be practical right, about right. that. So tell us about, okay, I want to go back to that question. I don't want to forget about it, about the yeah. legal career and what, what happened or what moment might have struck you and you said, okay, this is it. I need to go back to writing, to, to doing it. Oh, when in terms of my legal career, I always wanted to go back to writing when I was a lawyer and I used to stay late at the office and write because in those days, you know, we had typewriters and we didn't have mm -hmm. computers and and sometimes another lawyer would say, what are you doing? You know, he, he was leaving and I would say, oh, I'm working on a story. I was a little embarrassed to, mm -hmm. to tell him. But, right. um, and um, so I was always doing that. And then when I had children, I took some classes at the University of Denver in fiction writing and also poetry. And after I had my third child, I really stopped practicing law. And we were living in Denver and then we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And I decided I didn't have the kind of support system I had in Denver. And I thought, well, now I'll try and write. But of course, I had three small children, so it wasn't really that practical. It wasn't like I had a lot of time. But at least I wasn't competing with another job. So right. that's really when I right. started to do so it. You, so how did you handle it? Because some, some <clears throat> parents, I mean, you know, that's why you were asked. The reason that we met was because of uh, Penn Parentis. Yes. And so... How did you handle the parenting and the writing then? Do you remember? Those I days? do. It, it, was, it was challenging. I, when the kids were in school, I would try to do it when they were in school if I didn't have other things to do. 
or if I didn't have time, sometimes when they were doing their homework, I would say, you know, mom has to be in the study. Can you do your homework? I'll be out in an hour. <laughs> but they would knock on the door. But I, I was always trying to, I know, I was always trying to carve out time. Or sometimes I stayed up really late. You know, I'd stay up till three in the morning working on a story. And I would pay the next day because I was exhausted. Yeah, yeah. So it was really a juggling act. Sure. It, it was hard to do. These are great when questions. When did it get easier? When did it get easier, do you think? Oh, um, was it that the children growing up, is it the typical thing the children had to finally feed themselves? Or? Right. Well, I think, you know, as the children grow up, grew up, it got easier. And as I became more committed to it, so that I would think to myself, I have to take a block of time. I have to find three hours. And so I would do that. You know, I, I would do that. And when I had something published, it was such a thrill. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is great. You know, I want to do it? this again. What was it? Tell us about oh, it. Oh, my, um, well, I had something published actually in a newspaper when I was a public defender. But then I had a short story published in the Colorado Review when my kids were young. It's not in any of these books. It's called Dislocation. And it was so thrilling mm-hmm. to have that published. I thought, I want to do this again. And I also joined a writer's group in Nashville. And most of the writers in there were much further along than I was, had published books. And we would meet once a week. I couldn't always go once a week because of my family obligations. And we used to read manuscripts aloud, like everyone would read 10 or 15 pages, and then we would critique each other. And that also gave me a deadline. I would think, I want to hand something in. I want to read something. So... um, that That's wonderful. I love that story. So, so, so then the last, uh, how did the Bellevue Review come up for you? What, what oh, happened there? Well, we had moved to New York. I've moved a lot, as you have. <laughs> and um, We have some of the same life experiences. We did. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's interesting. Um, and I knew some of the people who were going to be starting this journal, and I talked to Danielle Offrey, who was the editor, and I who was going to be the editor, and I asked her if they needed anyone who knew about fiction. And she said, sure. You know, she said, um, if I had some time, I gave her my CV. She said that would be wonderful. So when I got involved, it was just an idea. We didn't even have a name for the journal. And Danielle and Jerry Lowenstein and Martin Blazer, he was actually my husband at that time. It was his idea to start the journal, but he wasn't really involved in the creation of it. So the three of us, Danielle, Jerry, and I just made up the Bellevue Literary Review and made up what was going to be. And then when we, we put ads in different journals and when we started getting poetry, we realized that we didn't know much about poetry, so we needed poetry editors. So I, needed, I knew someone who was a poet, and Danielle did, and we brought them in both for an interview, but we had mixed up the times, so they both came at the same time. So we interviewed one and then the other, and we decided to include them both. Oh, wow. And so that's, that's, that's kind of how it happened. And when we started the journal, we didn't even know if anyone would be interested in reading the material right. or if anyone would submit to it. So it was wow. just really kind of a shot in the dark. But I'm just going to guess here that one of the biggest hurdles is getting funds. Was that the case? Yes. And the Department of Medicine funded it, gave them, gave us some funds. Oh, wonderful! So that's how we were able to. For the pro- get I started. imagine the production is is what, what's the production like? Is it? Uh, well, I don't know the costs of it because but, it's a people are still getting physical copies. Right, right? they get physical yes. copies, and now we charge five dollars to submit. So 
the money that we're able to bring in from submission helps us and we have a contest which we charge for. I think I looked it up because I just published a poet. Oh. And I think you were on our list. I had no idea actually that you were involved with the Bellevue Review, I have to admit, until we started to prepare for this oh, interview. Uh-huh. And yes, I saw that and I said, like such a great publication. I was like, I, I wanted to spend more time with it. I was like, and it's, I was looking at specifically at the poetry in this uh-huh. case because he's a poet, but oh. but I know that you publish other things. Right. We, yeah. It's like a terrific publication. Well, it's, it's really been wonderful to see how it's evolved, you know, into a national publication. And we also get grants now. Oh, so, wonderful. So that's how we are able to stay afloat. And how much uh, of your workday is, is taken up by the... Well, it takes a lot of time, so I I try to, you know, I try to have days where I just work on my own writing, and then days or evenings when I do the Bellevue Literary Review. And it's very busy when we're putting out an issue. That's when it gets really right. busy. So. And any more questions before we move on to well, the next? I just wanted to ask if it helps you to write and how it helps you to write, because I have a sense that when you feel compelled to do something, it's because there's a benefit. You get something um, other than just having your name in print. There's maybe a more emotional reward to it. Is that true? I think that's absolutely absolutely true, that there is an emotional reward. And I think that there are things that I can say, and probably a lot of people can say on the page, that I can't say in the same way to a person. Right. And so when I write or when I wrote those stories for this book, I was probably working out a lot of things in my own life and things that I had been thinking about, even though maybe I didn't live each of the experiences, but I probably lived all the emotions. Oh, yeah, and so that makes sense. it really helped me to put the emotions on the page. So I think you're absolutely right. I know that we've had this theme in other conversations with authors, this idea that there's a drive to do it um, sometimes because it helps work things out in the writer's own mind or sometimes because the writer is just bothered. I remember our very first podcast was with Patricia Horvath, who has also been published in Bellevue Literary Review, and she said that her writing started with something bothering her. And her way of dealing with this thing that was bothering her was to start sorting it out with words and with writing. So... May I ask what's what's next? Are you are you working on any other books or collections at the moment? Yes, I am, thank you. I'm, I'm putting together another story collection. So I'm taking stories and revising them and writing some new stories. And some of the stories I'm revising have been published, but some haven't. And some of them, I consider the stories in various states of disrepair. <laughs> you know, I might have stopped a story because I just, I couldn't get to where I wanted with it. And so now I'm going back to see if I can revise it and bring the story up to a certain level. Can you share the theme or is that on the wrap still? Well, I mean, I'm trying to put stories in that are on a similar theme. It's probably a theme like this. I mean, I think of... This collection is dealing with um, relationships between spouses, friends, lovers, parents, children, and how relationships change over time and because of age and illness. And so the book has some similarities with it, that it is really dealing with 
connection and disconnection. Right. And I'm also working on a novel about a public defender huh. and an insanity case. So interesting. I am. Um, that's is that new territory for you, the novel? Well, I've written a draft of this novel many times. This novel has had many, many drafts. Um, Lots of love for that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just trying to see if I can get it right. Okay, well, um, that's wonderful. Yeah. Has it been hard to get a publisher? It's very hard to get a publisher, and that's one of the frustrations of being a writer. Um, but I was really fortunate. In fact, um, with my novel, I have a whole story. The novel is on Bittersweet Place, and that's the name of it. And I had an agent for the novel, and she sent it out to publishers, and then she wrote me an email saying she was leaving the publishing business, and she, her agency wasn't taking any more clients, any of her clients. So here she was promoting the book, and she left, and I decided I would have to do it myself. And in that case, it was serendipity. Um, the, a publicist that I knew, I was talking to her, and she said, do you have any work? I know someone who's looking to oh. start a press and to publish. So I sent him the novel and the stories, and he chose the novel. That is so great. So it was sort of a happy ending to a really upsetting story. And sure. did you stay with that press? Because I know you have a total of three books out and two more on the way. Right. I, no, I didn't stay with that press. That press is Relegation Books, and it was a wonderful experience, but the publisher, Dallas Hudgens, just wants to publish one book per author. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's, his, that's his goal, because it's a small press. Right. right. Um, so even though he had seen the stories and he really liked the stories, he, didn't, he only wanted to publish one book. Okay. And I had a friend who published with Serving House Press, and she was encouraging me to contact Walter Cummins, who's the publisher, right. and I knew him actually, and so I contacted him and I sent him my work, and they have outside readers who read it, and they decided they would publish it. But interestingly, with this book, you know, talking about struggle, the stories I sent him aren't the stories that ended up being in the book. Some of them are. After um, I sent it to him, we talked about the stories, and he felt some were stronger than others. And I sent him other stories to ask him what he thought and put a few of those in and took the others out that he felt were maybe not quite as done right. as finished. Right. So it went through many iterations. So prolific. I love it. As if you have baskets and baskets of stories well, around. You know, I have a lot of baskets. I've taken classes, you know, where you have to write stories. I've been so in writer's groups, sure. so it helps. So I've written stories. but. There's really a difference between writing a story and taking a story to its end point so that it's finished and then putting a story in a book and having it published because a manuscript can have all kinds of grammatical errors and different things in it that you cannot have in a published book. And one of the challenges of this book is that I had to go through all the stories and make sure I didn't repeat names or images or pieces of dialogue Right. or situations. Sure. You know, I noticed that there were a lot of red brick houses, so I had to, even though that sounds silly, I had to change it and sure. change some of the All right, else. well, we're just about going to wrap it up now. So we, at this point, like to ask our guests to share where our listeners can find the books and anything else that you'd like to share with them. So um, you can give them your website, tell them where to find you. Okay, thank you. Well, first of all, it's wonderful talking to you both. And my books are available on Amazon um, and my website and also barnesandnoble.com. And my website is ranaweinberg.com. 
and that's R-O-N-N-A-W-I-N-E-B-E-R-G, spelled like real wine. <laughs> and um, you can find out more about my books and my other writing and my blogs and the Bellevue Literary Review from that website. Excellent. Okay, so now that we uh, are concluding the official part of the interview, um, you will be the first episode in season three, which means that things will be changing up a little bit. And so we are testing some additional segments with you. <laughs> so, well, this is so much fun. I'm glad it doesn't have to stop. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure what will air, but we can play a little. Okay. Um, one of the ideas that came up was um, just asking you different kinds of questions, questions that are sort of related but not quite. So, for example, if you had a favorite book to give to someone as a gift, what book would you give as a gift? Um, and it's good that you don't know the answer. We want you to <laughs> That's a tough question because there's so many wonderful books. Um, I might give a short story collection by Alice Munro, The Progress mm -hmm. of Love. I might give actually a book of poetry by Edward Hirsch, okay. who I really admire. He has many books of poetry. I-R-S-C-H? I-R-H-I-R-S-C-H. Um, or I, I love the novel Shadows on the Hudson by Isaac Bashevis Singer. Nice. I might give that book. I love it. Okay, great. And now let's ask another question. What are you, what are you reading now? I am reading two things now. I'm reading The Collected Stories by William Trevor, and he's a phenomenal short story writer. He's an Irish writer, and his mm -hmm. stories are masterpieces. And I'm also reading Pachinko. Oh, I know Pachinko. Yes. yes. I, I've met this writer. She's wonderful. Is her name Zha Min Lee? Yes. 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 And that book is just gripping. I mean, it's an old-fashioned novel. It's really, really great. I'm really enjoying it. Okay. Any, 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 we're rolling the dice here. We're just having some fun. Any ideas? Last questions? No, uh, yeah. Anything you want to ask? We're just putting you on the spot. Well, I <laughs> go for the conflict and the, you know, struggles. Yeah. So I just feel like it's important to say what's been the toughest thing for you to learn or the hardest thing for you to cope with in your career. That's an interesting question. I think the hardest thing to cope with is, first of all, there are a couple of things, is struggling to write a story and to get it right when it's really frustrating and it just doesn't seem to be going right. That's, that's really tough. And also, when I feel I've finished a story and I send it out and all I get are rejections, that's very disappointing and discouraging. I think to myself, why am I doing this? You know, because as a writer, it's true, I want to put emotions and certain things on the page, but I also would like to have an audience you know, that's not my main goal, but if something is finished and I feel that it's good enough to get rejections is really frustrating. But rejections are definitely part of the business. Yes, so yes. it's something that I, I have to keep in mind. But, you know, sometimes I get really discouraged and I think, why am I even doing this? You know, I just get rejected. I can't finish this story. I don't have any time. You know, when my kids were young, it's just so hard to find time. Right. 
why can't I be a normal person and just <laughs> have a good time? And, you know. Yes, right? Like like the little girl who was sitting at her desk <laughs> right. as a kid, right? Like, get away from the desk. Right, exactly. Right. Why can't I just enjoy myself like right. other people? Why do I have to suffer like this? <laughs> I love but it. Then, then usually... And then I, the compulsion takes over. Right, then the compulsion takes over. So there are, okay. there are a number of Okay, stories. so I have one last, you know, run-of-the-mill question, I guess. And if you want one more, that's fine. So how about this one? How about this one? If you could have uh, an afternoon meeting any writer of your choice, who would that be? Oh, that's a great question. I might like to meet Alice Munro. I, I really love her stories. I think they're beautiful. What would you? What What do you think you would ask? I mean, what would be? If you can tell them something, what would you say? What would be your introduction? What would be like? Hi, I am Rana Weinberg, and I thank you. Fill in the book. <laughs> I would just say I love your stories. They're they're phenomenal um, because the stories are short stories and they're like novels. And she deals with the small moments in life. You know, she she doesn't have a huge canvas, but she does it so beautifully. And I probably would say, how do you do it? And where do you get your ideas? Right. And do you ever struggle? Right. And um, what was it like at the beginning? Um, so I might ask her those things. Wonderful. Okay, you've done such a great job. You've been wonderful. Look at that. We couldn't even trip you up. You're <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Okay, so that is all for today. We are going to wrap it up here and say goodbye. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's really a pleasure to talk to you, Diana, to talk to you, Marina. It's been great. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.